Good morning, church family. Great. Welcome home. You know, we like to say that around here. And um, my name is Jay Fennell, if you don't know who I am, and I'm the discipleship minister here at the church at Nolansville. You know, when I'm on the phone with people who don't know who I am, I usually just describe myself as the tall, bald guy who works on staff, and they're like, oh yeah, I know who you are. Um, But I'm happy to be here today to stand in for our pastor, Wade Owens, who's taking the Sunday where he's not preaching, he's here, and he's actually just being a church member today. Which I think is a healthy thing because, you know, we've gone through a really kind of a busy season of ministry with Easter and in the last few weeks. And so it's good for him to take a week off and just to kind of be and soak in the morning and just be a church member, which I think is a really healthy thing for our pastor to do that. And so he's modeling what it looks like to, to pace yourself, which is a good thing. Today we're going to be taking a look at uh, the book of First John in our sermon series entitled Up at Night. Last week we were in John, 1 John chapter 5. This week we'll be in 1 John chapter 4. We're working in reverse from 5 down to 1 over the next number of weeks. And so we're going to be in 1 John today. Some of you know, probably all of you know, that the book was written by the Apostle John. And he also wrote the book of 2 John and the book of 3 John. He wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And this is a man who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, uh, he was, had firsthand experience um, living with Jesus and hearing the teachings and seeing the miracles and experiencing the very presence of Jesus as they walked from town to town and place to place. He was there at the crucifixion. He was there um, at the tomb when, it was, uh, when, he, when they realized that it was empty and he came running to the tomb to see that it was empty He was there at the Last Supper, Um, so he was an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. In the Gospel of John, he describes himself as the the one whom Jesus loved. He had an intimate relationship with Jesus, almost like one of his best friends. So he felt like, and he knew what it felt like to experience the love of God in his life. We're going to be talking about that this morning, that love, that love of God, which is a mega theme of the Bible. But we're going to take a look at God's love in the book of 1 John chapter 4. Some of you may be familiar with 1 John 4. It has some pretty memorable or at least some common or familiar verses that you've heard before. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. You've probably heard that before. You know, 1 John 4, 18 says there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. You may have heard that one before. There's actually a story about 1 John 4, 18. I heard one time about a bride-to-be who was on her wedding day, and she was nervous, as any bride would be, I guess. And so she, her friend thought that she needed some encouragement, and so she thought, you know what, I'm going to text her 1 John 4, 18. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. But instead, she accidentally texted her John 4, 18, which says, the fact is you have had five husbands, And the man you now have is not your husband. So I think that the encouragement backfired in that case. But we're not going to be in 1 John 4.18. We're going to be in 1 John 4.19 through 21 today. So if you've got your Bibles, you turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. And this is what God's Word says. We love because He first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And so what we learn here in this text is that God's love comes to us first. And it's meant to come to us, but also to flow from us into the lives of others. We're going to take a look at two questions today. We're going to unpack two questions. First question is this. Why should this matter to us? That God's love comes to us first. The second question we're going to answer is, what does this mean for us? Why should this matter to us? What does this mean for us? Pray with me if you will. And so Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that we are loved men and women, boys and girls in this room today. We don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. And yet, God, you pour it out on our lives. Thank you that we can gather together today. Thank you that we can worship you. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we can sing songs about you. Thank you that we enjoy the community of believers together in this room. As we take a look at this scripture, teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So why, so why should this matter to us? Here's the answer in a nutshell. It should matter to us because when we were unlovable, God loved us anyway. When we were unlovable, God loved us anyway. What does that mean, that we were unlovable? Well, the scriptures paint a pretty grim picture of the human condition apart from God. That our sin, our brokenness, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, it was impossible for us to love God. It's impossible for us to know God. It's impossible for us to have a relationship with God. King David in the Psalms even said, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's anyone who is wise, anyone who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul quotes this verse and his book and to the, to the Romans. And he is talking about God's faithfulness and he's talking about man's rebelliousness. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and all have become worthless. And there is no one who does what is good, not even one. Paul, even later on in this book, book of Romans, speaks about the tension that he feels in his own life between the things of the spirit and the things of the flesh and how they war against one another. And he says this, for I know nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Some of you probably know what that feels like. I know that I do. That war, that struggle that takes place, the point is, is that there's a power, there's sin, is such a powerful force in our lives that it naturally wants to pull us away from the things of God. It wants to pull us away from God himself. He even mentions, Paul does in Romans 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, not some, 
Not just those people, not just the people who are not at church this morning, but all. All have sinned. The problem is is that sin separates us from a holy God. Sin separates us from the source of divine love, from perfect love, from God's love. And the original design, the way God designed it right from the beginning, is that God and man would have a perfect love relationship together, but sin broke it. And sin broke it forever. The issue is for us, which is really, really difficult for us to grasp, is that there's nothing we can do about it. We can't fix it. We can't be good enough. We can't work our way to earning God's love. There's nothing that we can do to fix our sin problem. The the, the Bible calls this condition spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so going to church doesn't fix it. Being a moral person doesn't fix it. Giving your money to, to charities doesn't fix it. Nothing is good enough to earn the love of God. And what makes that even worse is that the penalty for sin is death. God is a loving God, but he's also a just God. And sin must be punished. And the only suitable punishment is death. We deserve God's wrath poured out on us, and that which permanently separates us from the love of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So we literally deserve to die because of our unholiness and our disobedience before a holy God. But there's good news, okay? There's good news. Is that God's love compelled him to do something that we could not do for ourselves. Stuck in our pit, stuck in sin, God in his loving kindness and grace and mercy reached down and provided a way. Paul writes this in Romans 5a. He says, but God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, I just read it. There's a second half to the verse that I want to show you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice here in this verse, notice the difference between wages and gifts. Wages are things that we earn. When we have a job, we do a job, we earn wages. It's given to us because we deserve it. We've earned it. What do we earn from sin? The Bible says we earn death. Death gets us what we've earned because of our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Gifts come to us undeservingly. We don't earn gifts, right? We give gifts freely because of our love for somebody. God gives gifts. So sin pays wages. God gives gifts. What does God give? He gives eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. John 13, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. And so the result of God's love in this verse that you can see What is the result? The result is that he gave his one and only son. For what purpose? So that everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, may not die and have eternal life. 
So because God loved us first, he provided a way for us to have a relationship with him again. And his son paid the price, not us. His son willingly died. He went to the cross for me and for you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what that means is that our sin that we've committed, the sins that we committed yesterday, the sins that we will commit tomorrow, and the sins that we're committing right now are all put on Jesus. He paid the price. Our sin on him, his righteousness on us. Theologians call that the great exchange. Sin for righteousness so that we can get to God. And that's why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the question is, why should this matter to us? It should matter because God loved us first, even when we were dead, unlovable, rebellious sinners. And he loved us enough to make a way for us to have relationship with him. And that only happens through Jesus. So the promise for us today, for all of us in this room or anyone watching online, is for those who want to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who put their hope in their faith in him, who turn away from their sin and ask for forgiveness, and who commit their lives to following Jesus for the rest of their life, God will save them and will give them eternal life where you live forever, abundant life now, eternal life to come. He first loved us. That's where it started. Some of you in this room, maybe for the first time have heard this. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've never heard the gospel before. And I want to encourage you today to respond to the gospel because God wants a relationship with you. His love for you is real. Even when you feel unlovable and you're asking the question, am I really loved? The answer is always yes. God loves you and has made a way for you to have a relationship with him. God, the only source of real life and purpose and hope in the world. And that only happens through Jesus. So that's the question. That's, that's why it should matter. It should matter to us because God loved us even when we were unlovable. The second question is, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, John answers the question in verse 20 and 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister who, has, who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. So in other words, what, what Paul is saying is God love, God's love comes to us. He initiates that love, comes to us, and it's not to be dammed up in our life. It comes to us and it's to flow through us into the lives of others. God's love overflowing from our life into the lives of others. And he says, use a strong language. He says, you know, if somebody says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. And so the litmus test for us, for love of God, is love of others. There's an undeniable link. There's a, there isn't a separation between love of God and love of others. John says in his gospel, 
he, well, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I give you a new command. He's, he's talking to his disciples. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our love for others shows the world that we love God and we belong to him. The Christian life of love is a supernatural life. It requires resources that we don't have. And it's not produced by human strength. And it's humbling to admit that. And it's crucial that we admit that because left to ourselves, we we can't love. We need a, a source flowing through us in order for us to love people in the world. But this is can be very encouraging too because what it means is that if you're sitting in this room this morning and feeling, you know what, I'm not a very loving person. You're not at a disadvantage because by nature, no one in this room are loving people, okay? We're all level when it comes to that. If we were, love would just be a fruit of our personality or the way we were brought up or our biological makeup, but it's not. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, It's cultivated in our lives as we follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit cultivates the fruits of the Spirit in our lives so that they manifest themselves outward into the lives of others. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's cultivated as we mature in Christ. That's sanctification. We're born again, and then we grow again. Sanctification. Love is cultivated. And John gives us an illustration when he says, and forces us to look in the mirror. How can you love God whom you haven't seen and yet hate your brother or sister whom you have seen? And the answer to that question is, you can't. You can't. It's difficult to prove whether or not we love God based on our actions toward him because we can't see him. He's invisible. I mean, we can spend time in the word of God and we can pray and we can obey his teachings, which is important to do, obviously, But the question is, how does love for God practically play out in the real world? It's evidenced by love to real people. That's how. It's evidenced by loving people created in God's image. We love God's image bearers in the world. And so what John is saying is that our life must match our lips. If we say we love God... If God's love comes to us, it must flow through us to others in the world. And you might ask, well, what about the people that are hard to love? Because we've got those, right? We've got those in our lives. It could be a coworker, It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member. It could be a church member. All of us have those people in our lives. And the question is, what about them? Well, John gives no exceptions He gives no exceptions here. He says it's never going to be easy, but it's never not an option to love even those who are difficult to love. Our love poured out into the lives of others. And, you know, I was was thinking about this message over the course of the week. I was thinking about certain people even in our church. I was thinking about our deacons. I was thinking about these men who go to hospital rooms and sit with people that are 
having surgery and praying for them. And writing letters of encouragement and love to those in need and doing whatever it takes to make people feel the love of God. They don't do that because they feel obligated or or it's a duty. They do it because of the love that pours out of them into the lives of others. The love that they receive from God. I think about our nurture team. I think about these women who put care baskets together for new moms who just had babies or those who have lost a loved one. And they... It's meticulous, and it's done with excellence, and they do that because they love, not because they have to do it, not because they're obligated, not because someone told them they have to. They do it because they love people. The love of God comes to them, and it flows from them into those people, and those people feel that love. I think about our next-gen volunteers. I think about our preschool elementary school, our student ministry workers who devote their time to love on the next generation. There's some people right now, this very hour, serving in the preschool and kids ministry, and they're getting spit up on. And they're changing diapers. Have you ever changed someone else's kid's diaper? It might be one of the worst experiences that you'll ever want to have. I didn't even like changing my own kid's diapers, much less anyone else's kid's diaper. And yet they're doing that. They don't do that because they love it. They because they love changing diapers. They do it because they love those kids and they love the opportunity that they have to pour into them. Teach them about Jesus. Help them see Christ in their own life and why he matters in their life. And then even last Saturday, our next our, um, engagement in Tennessee, we had a group of people that showed up on a Saturday morning on a beautiful day. They could have been doing anything else but they showed up at Cedar Grove Elementary and they prayer walked and they served and they gave out free hot dogs and they gave clothes to people that needed clothes. Like, why do they do those things? Like, what would compel anyone to love that way? And the answer is, is they've received love from God. Like, they understand what that means, what that looks like. They want that love to flow through them into the lives of others. So, confession I kind of like fairy tales. Not all fairy tales, but just some. So I've confessed. This is my confession this morning. But my favorite, probably my favorite fairy tale is Beauty and the Beast. And um, I think you, hopefully, I'm not the only one here that that knows Beauty and the Beast. Raise your hand if if you like Beauty and the Beast. Come on. All right, good. I feel like I'm not isolated here, alone up here on, on the platform. So Beauty and the Beast, I mean, there's that romance, you know, there's the action, there's the urgency, you know the story, right? The handsome prince becomes a beast, cursed because of his ugliness and the selfishness of his life and the rose petals, you know, if they fall and he's still a beast, he's that way forever, you know, but I mean, you know the story, right? But Belle arrives on the scene you know, the curse doesn't go away until the love of a woman comes to him before, you know, as a beast. And, um, and, and the beast is hideous. You know, he, he's unpleasant and he's demanding. And, and, and yet over time, Belle, Belle falls in love with the beast, right? And the curse is broken and he goes back to being a handsome prince, and they live happily ever after. And there are lots of stories, and I miss a bunch of details, okay? So don't hold me to it. And please don't send me any Beauty and the Beast gifts this week or whatever. 
But there are a few lessons to be learned about that story. And one of them is this, is that, that a, a person must be loved in order to become lovable. And God did that for us. When we were unlovable, when we were stuck in our sin, when we were in the pit, when we had no hope for tomorrow, God said, I love you. And said, come. And then made a way. So the idea is that God's love comes to us. It's not dammed up with our, our lives. And then it flows through us. Pray with me. So Lord, thank you for your great love. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And by your grace and your mercy, you freely give it through Jesus. Thank you for that reality today. Thank you for that truth. Thank you that we don't have to go to bed at night thinking, am I loved? Because we know that we are loved by you. Thank you, God, for the truth of your word that gives hope and purpose to our lives. We love you too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.